Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mac and Jack Sports Show as we're back to start our new week here Thursday. And we're on Thursday through Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m. We're live on YouTube, Roku TV, Facebook, Twitter. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, legendary boxing Hall of Fame writer himself, Jack Hirsch. Guest today scheduled on, Jack, is Carter B., our NHL analyst. And we got a special uh, guest on today, Ben Doughty. Uh, a author in boxing. Of course, he was involved in boxing for a long time. We just wrote a, a uh, I guess, an autobiography, if you will, maybe on on William uh, Wilfred Benitez called The Fifth King, um, the rise and fall of his career is about. And of course, he's over there in the United Kingdom uh, getting ready for the Fury White fight. So we have a lot to talk about with him. He's doing about 930, folks. So how you doing today, Jack? How's everything down in Florida? Good, good. We'll be back in New York next week and uh, a lot of activity going on. You know, in this age of social media, no matter where you are, you can follow your sports. You can see your sports. I mean, the game's all over the place, which, you know, is a good thing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's not like you're like the old days. If you're not in New York, you're not going to catch a lot of the New York news. You can just tune into any, almost any place uh, that has New York news on it and catch up on it. So it's... Mac, Mac, remember the old days that be a baseball game on the West Coast. Yeah. And we would get the newspaper the next day trying to get a result of what sure. happened the night before. And if the game went a little longer than anticipated, the paper went to press. And you wouldn't get an answer till the evening's edition. The New York Daily News used to have two editions out, the morning and the evening edition. And people used to wait by these candy stores. I, I, what do you call them these days, Mac? I haven't heard the term candy store in ages, but that's what they were called, bogatas. I don't know, whatever. But newspapers were the thing, you know, to get. And we'd wait for the newspaper to be delivered off the truck. And it would be delivered off the truck. We would buy it. We would turn to the scores. Now you get it pitch by pitch on the internet. Right. I'm watching yesterday, Mac, the Nets-Celtic game. At the same time, I'm following the Yankee game pitch by pitch on the internet. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, it's crazy today how much coverage there actually is. So, Jack, in college basketball, Jay Wright, he retires as head coach of Villanova. I would say a legendary legendary coach he's in the hall of fame he uh he had a record of 52 520 two national titles you know um five conference titles like i said he was inducted to the hall of fame this was kind of surprising jack this wasn't known right Two, he said he was started thinking about about two weeks ago so it's uh, a decision he came to i hope uh i wish him well he's going to still be associated with the university um with the president of the university. So uh, another great coach, Jack, hangs it up for the year. Max, sometimes you make decisions and you're not sure exactly why, but it just all of a sudden feels right. I mean, I experienced it on a lower level. I was president of the Boxing Writers Association for six years. A few months before I voluntarily stepped down, I thought to myself, I want to do this forever because we just had the greatest banquet in Las Vegas. I was dealing with Floyd Mayweather, Mike Tyson, all the big names. I was so psyched up. 
And all of a sudden, you know, I'm walking one day, I happen to be in Rhode Island, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, something just doesn't feel right to continue. And you kind of hit a wall. You kind of feel it's time to move on. He, he's 60 years old, Jay Wright. And maybe he's thinking, I want to relax a little more in life. I want to travel a little bit. I want to chill out, play a little golf, just be able to watch a little TV, not do the rigors of practice because it's been so repetitious to me. I accomplished all I want to accomplish. And something is telling him, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore, but I still want to be involved in certain capacities the way he's going to be. They went to the final four last year, Villanova. So it's certainly not a question of the school not wanting him there. And an experienced coach like Jay Wright, Mac, I don't know whether you disagree, experienced coaches, they usually don't suffer burnout quite the same way. They kind of know how to pace themselves a little more because they've been around the block and they know they can step away whenever they want because they've gotten the financial rewards, number one. Number two, they have all the prestige they need. So why are they doing it? They're doing it in the current sense. They're not doing it so much to build a legacy as they're doing it because they enjoy it. And it gets to the point where they think, I don't want the responsibility anymore. I'd rather relax, chill out, and be involved in other ways. That's what may have been the case with Jay Wright. I think you're right, Jack. I think everything you said there was right. I mean, you know, I mean, that's any type of coach, college, even down to high school, Jack, your time is so uh, uh, tense and involved and scripted and you're, you're trying to get, you know, your team to be better and win and, and to try to build for the following year. There's all kinds of things you're doing, scouting and recruiting, and you know, all that stuff. It's, it's really, I mean, if you have a month off a year, you're lucky. And I know they, they're probably thinking about while they're on vacation somewhere, they're probably thinking of it too. So, I mean, you know, this is, it's, it's not an easy life. I mean, I don't feel sorry for them because, you know, this is what they want to do and, and they do get compensated for it. But I mean, unlike other, other, you know, jobs that you have, you can, you know, punch out and go home. This really isn't one of those jobs. So good for him. I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's moved on. He might get the itch and come back. You never know, Jack, some, some, some coaches and, uh, you know, they, they think they want to quit and then they quit and, you know, they, 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 it's so much in their blood, they want to come back. So Mac, Mac, how do you like this scenario? He's from the Philly area. Imagine the Sixers, the next round, get eliminated from the playoffs, and imagine that being a coaching change. That'd be a major outcry. We want Jay Wright to coach the Sixers, and you, yeah. ne- you never know. You, you never, don't. never know. Don't. I don't wish Doc Rivers to get fired. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just talking – about a possible, you know, scenario that could pop up out of nowhere. Sure, sure. You never know. I mean, listen, you know, he's a he's a hometown favorite, very successful. And there's college basketball coaches that have gone up to the NBA and done very well. So who knows? But again, good luck to him. Good luck to his family. Hope he enjoys his retirement and 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 has has fun in life a little bit. So uh, Jay Wright retires from Villanova. Jack, I, I really want to get into something that's really I, I don't understand, and maybe you can help me understand this, this wide receiver frenzy. Latest Samuel, Debo Samuels, wants to be traded. He doesn't want to talk to 49ers. You got A.J. Brown wanting to be traded. 
We think DK Metcalf's going to be traded before the draft. And I get, I get receivers are important, but their importance is nowhere close to a quarterback. In a quarterback, I can see getting thirty million dollars a year, forty million dollars a year in today's market. I can't see that with a wide receiver, especially what you have to give up to sign this guy. Now, Tyreek Hill, going to Miami Dolphins, does not in any way mean the Dolphins are going to the Super Bowl. They probably won't even get close. Devontae Adams going to Raiders doesn't mean the Raiders are going to the Super Bowl. Far from it. The Raiders are not going to the Super Bowl next year. And these other Debo Samuels, I, I don't know where he's going to end up, but he's going to demand a lot of money and a lot of draft picks from the team that wants to get him. And, and the 49ers don't have to give him up. Let's let's put it first of all, he's under two, he has two more years with the San Francisco 49ers. They don't have to do anything. DK Metcalf's playing in the last year. So the, the Seattle Seahawks are going to have to make a decision. So what bothers me about this, Jack, is when I watch shows and listen to shows on the radio, and they say stupid stuff. Now, these are former NFL players, Jack. These are guys that played the game who are now analysts. And they say, well, Miami Dolphins are going for it. Going for what? Going to sell some more tickets? Maybe it'll be a little more exciting? What are they actually going for? If you look at last year's Super Bowl, you had two wide receivers that weren't making hardly any money that were the stars of that Super Bowl, if you want to call them, that, call them stars. Right? You had Cope from the Rams, not making nearly as much as, as, as these other people. And you had the young rookie, won a rookie contract. So receivers do not equate Super Bowls, Jack. I don't even think they equate, equate championships, to be honest with you. And they'll say, well, they're doing what the Rams did. No, the Rams did not do that. The Rams did not go out and get a, a high-priced diva wide receiver. They got a quarterback and a defensive end. That was their two big, big veteran signings. Had nothing to do with a wide receiver. OBJ did okay. I mean, he was, he, was, he was a nice little piece of the puzzle, but he sure wasn't making $30 million a year and the other team giving up, you know, multiple first-round draft choices. So I don't get this. I'm hoping maybe you can explain to me why a team would sell away their future to get a receiver that could get hurt coming out of a cut, can get hurt blocking, could get hurt catching the ball going across the middle that may not even, and we're talking guaranteed money, Jack. And all these star receivers that moved, the Adams, Hill, they were in the Super Bowl last year. So what what is what's going on, Jack? Why is this frenzy for wide receivers going on? Mac, I'm somewhere in the middle between you. To say they haven't been to the Super Bowl, I think is a little unharsh to hold it against them because at the end of the day, it's a team game, and only two teams make the Super Bowl: one from the AFC, one from the NFC. Uh, Devontae Adams, for example, the Packers didn't get to the Super Bowl, but they had the best record in football. And they came, you know, they go to the playoffs. They were knocking on the door at least. And then there are other factors, you know, involved. The game they got eliminated in, the weather was brutally cold. So that's not conducive to a passing game in those conditions. 
but I understand what you're saying. <clears throat> I agree with you actually a little more than not, but keep this in mind. Certain receivers are big time weapons and they make a big time difference. Uh, the Bengals did go to the Super Bowl and their big time weapon was their rookie, Jamar Chase. Now, if you had his position, wide receivers by committee, guys not quite as good, maybe they don't go to the Super Bowl. Maybe they come up a little short because they did win in overtime against the Chiefs to get there at the end. You know, certain guys like a Jerry Rice, a Terrell Oates, a Randy Moss, major, major weapon. You can't quite get another guy of that caliber. But with that said, you can maybe make up for it. But if you don't sign a receiver to this mega deal, you can fill in other positions. You could get two or three other starters. And you could actually perhaps be better off. The Tyreek Hill thing, who's throwing at them in Miami? Tua. Tua hasn't pro proven he could stretch the field yet. So I don't know what I have given Tyreek Hill if I'm Miami, that contract. I don't think they're in the verge of getting over the top. And it depends on your situation at quarterback, Mac. If you have Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers, you want the one big receiver who can maybe push over the top. Look, the Packers are going to make up the Devontae Adams thing. I don't think they're going to get hurt. They already signed Sammy Watkins. Quality receiver, when healthy, they're going to draft a wide receiver probably in the first round. So between those two, they'll manage. They'll be okay. Uh, we have the cap. That's what the problem is. If we didn't have the cap, whatever you give these guys, maybe it doesn't hurt you as much in other positions. But now with the cap, you're suffering elsewhere. And what, what's the me mentality of these teams? I think they're thinking in terms of a weapon, a, a big a big play player, you know, who they could unleash on a 60-yard pass, you know, the Thunderbolts and that type thing. And you're right. Stefan Diggs gets the big contract in Miami. I mean, in Buffalo, I'm skeptical, you know, about that. DK Metcalf. I don't know, has he had a hissy fit yet about his new contract? But if I'm the Jets, I don't trade for DK Metcalf. I have a feeling they might. I really do. But I, at, they have the Jets go number four and number 10, and their name has been attached to a trade with DK Metcalf. They could conceivably give up a number 10 pick, number 10 overall and number 38 overall, let's say, for DK Metcalf and one other pick down the line. I don't think I'd do that because at number 10, you're going to be able to draft a really top-of-the-line college receiver and not pay him nearly the amount of DK Metcalf, which is going to give you a lot more flexibility under the cap to do other things. But then again, these teams tend to want to go for weapons. Look, OBJ, wasn't he that big weapon, the big time receiver with the Giants. Cleveland makes a deal. It didn't work out with Cleveland. He went to the Rams. He contributed with the Rams, caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl, but he wasn't a big weapon. No. But certain receivers, Matt, maybe you have to work something out with as much as you hate to and give them the money like a Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup with the Rams, he said he doesn't have to be the highest paid guy. He wants a deal that's fair for him and fair for the Rams. I like that attitude. So the Rams might be able to work with them. 
But, you know, what do you do investing in one player that's not a quarterback? Aaron Donald, he's a weapon on defense. What do you do there? I think the biggest problem too, Mac, and this is with all these signings, it, not only football, but in baseball, we never look at the back end of the contract. We always see what the guy is now. We don't want to see what the guy is going to be in three years. And we give them all this money. And usually in three years, they're not the same player. They start declining. So, And I hate when people say, Mac, and it could be any sport, you give a guy like a six-year contract, well, if he could give you four good years, then you're happy. No, I'm not happy. I want the full amount. I want everything for my money, Mac. I agree. You're going in there. I don't like money in the back end of the contract while I'm suffering later on. I agree. And I kind of agree with you. But the market gets set. It takes just one team to pay the mega money for wide receiver. Then the next guy's holding out for the same. Then another team eventually gives them money around that same amount. And then the market is set. And then you have a problem. Jerry Jones, you know what he said the other day? He was gloating what a great deal he made on Zach Prescott's contract because Jerry Jones's logic was, well, at the time, everyone, I, it looked like I overpaid Prescott, but now it doesn't look like such a bad deal when you see what all the other quarterbacks are getting. I actually made a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I could Jack, I could see that. I can see the quarterback being the highest paid player on the team, unless you got a, a, a freak on defense or something like a Lawrence Taylor or something like that. I can see the quarterback making all that money, a wide receiver. I can't see. I, I, I just, I, I don't know. What well, they're the, still going to get paid less than the quarterback, than the elite quarterback. I mean, I mean, you're, you're talking $30 million, Jack. That's quarterback money. That's quarterback money for a wide receiver. And a wide receiver, like I said, you know, quarterback has less chance of getting injured than the wide receiver does. The rules are in place for him to be protected. Wide receiver has some rules, but he's, he, like I said, he's cutting. He's trying to clear out the thing. He's blocking. He's catching. He's doing everything on every play. They don't just, you know, they don't run down Matt, the field. Uh, would you give Jerry Rice that superstar money? No. The young I, Jerry, you wouldn't give it to Jerry Rice? No, not one play. Not one receiver, Jack. No. Randy no. Moss? No. Those, no. These guys are weapons, but these guys I, are different. I, I listen, I agree, but there are see, I always thought economics was you know the things that you can't get you pay more for. Why receivers are going to be a dime a dozen? This is what they're producing in college right now. They're not producing running backs like they used to, they're producing wide receivers. So, why would you pay so much for an older receiver? When you got receivers like Jamar Chase coming out, I don't get that. Mac, it's amazing, you know, studying the mock drafts, <clears throat> seeing who's coming out, the lack of running backs. I yeah. mean, I mean, teams are waiting on running backs. I mean, it's the value just doesn't seem to be there out of college. And you know that it's high on receivers, it's high on pass rushes. But it just doesn't – the value is just not high on running backs anymore. But I think it's a mindset, Mac. I think years from now, a big value is going to be put on running backs again. But I think teams are putting a little more emphasis on the offensive line, which they absolutely should. I think that's the biggest problem 
with the majority of teams in the NFL. Hardly anyone has a top of the line offensive line. Yeah. And uh, so, and if you have a great offensive line, you make your running backs better. You make sure. your receivers better. Obviously, you make the quarterback better. Sure, sure, Jack. So we still got a little time uh, before Carter comes, and I want to talk about a couple baseball players right now. Otani pitches his lights out. I mean, Otani was on, and the total opposite is Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's numbers are are awful. And Otani, when I, you know, Jack, I watched, I watched the highlights or the games. And I try to figure out what what is the difference between, you know, an ace like Garrett Cole or, or supposedly ace like Garrett Cole was an ace and a guy like Otani. And when I watch Otani pitch, he's throwing more breaking balls. He's out of the zone when he's ahead. And he gets ahead. And all good pitchers want to get up 0-2 or, you know, 1-2. They don't want to get behind the batters because once they get behind the batters, they got to make that pitch, right? And it seems to me, and and, and tell me if I'm wrong, because now now we're we're starting to get close to that six games you were talking about with with Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole has is missing something, Jack. I don't know. As I said, I don't know if it's in his mechanics. He's not hiding the ball. I don't know if it's partly the catcher's fault. But I come back to Garrett Cole. And it seems to me that Garrett Cole is always going three and two in the count and he's got to strike somebody out or he's giving up a home run. And I don't know why he's not getting up 0-2 and and then throwing his breaking ball. You know, you're you're two and one. They don't care about it. You know, throw all the garbage you want to throw. You got to get up and that's basic pitching, right? You want to get up ahead of the batter. Garrett Cole ain't doing that this year, Jack. Severino, Nestor are both pitching better than him. So, I mean, have you watched? Have you watched him pitch? Do you? What do? You, what do you think is going on there, Jack? No, the other night he threw close to fifty pitches in the inning before take it being taken out. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Close to fifty pitches before he was taken out. And you're right; he's falling behind on the count. You know, hitters are battling him. They're fouling pitches off, and then they eventually prevail, get a walk. Location's a little off, but his stuff seems to be good. His stuff seems to be good. It's a little more location. It's been three starts. I mean, I'm concerned, but I'm not worried. How can you not be concerned three starts like that? As far as Otani goes, I mean, in a way, he's in the same boat with Garrett Cole. But listen to me. Last night, Otani was lights out. Yeah. Pitches six innings, strikes out 12 guys, doesn't give up a run. He was lights out. But to start before that against the Texas Rangers, they hammered him. Yeah. He had a hard time finding the strike zone. They hit a grand slam home off. I'm watching the game. Otani just wasn't good at all. I mean, he was even worse than Garrett Cole's been looking in that one start. It's been three starts. I don't take it lightly. In three starts, you would think he should be very good in at least one of them, okay? And it hasn't happened. And I understand, too, it gets to the point where you can't keep saying, well, it's early, give him time. Because when you have an ace like Garrett Cole, 
you don't have three bad starts in a row. Aces have made one bad start, maybe at most two, and then they kind of get straightened out. So now every time Garrett Cole takes the mound, he's going to be a kind of under the microscope his next start. All of us are anxiously waiting for him to break out of it. Also, you know, we use the term, Mac, for hitters, slump. The greatest hitters have a bad patch where they'll, have, they'll be up 50 times, okay, and maybe get uh, eight hits in 50 times at bat. And then they'll break out of it and they'll be their great self. Maybe that's the case with a pitcher once in a while. They just have like a kind of slump off the bat or they have a difficult time getting started. You know, if it happened with an elite hitter at this point, I don't think we're getting so hype about it. Take a play like Carlos Correa on the Twins, okay? The highest profile free agent. He's hitting like what, like what, 176 so far. You, but you know he's going to snap out of it, and he's going to be fine before the season's over. But with a pitcher, you know, you're concerned, you know, if he's missing the plate, they're hitting him. I'm sure Garrett Cole's going to figure this out. But I raised the question a while ago, Mac. Let's say he does figure it out. He's getting $36 million a year for the next seven years. You know, he signed for that yearly amount for nine years. He's two years in. I think he's been very good for the Yankees the last two years on balance. They can't complain. They haven't gotten their money's worth. He could have been a little better, but he was closer to what you want wanted than not. Okay, and but let's say the next seven years, Garrett Cole gets it together and he performs on an Andy Pettit level. You're not you're not giving a guy superstar money, making him, you know, the highest paid Yankee in history, 36 million a year, substantially more than you even offered Aaron Judge to give you Andy Pettit type performances. Do you take it? Yeah, you take it and you say the guy hasn't been a failure He's been good, but it's not what you're looking for. The Yankees paid that money to get an ace, okay? And he's been the exact opposite right now. But play pitchers get it together. Look, Chapman, he might be in the league closer this year when all said and done. He got the save yesterday. But remember last year he had a patch. He couldn't get anyone out. It was ridiculous after a while. Yeah, it's true, but I think a lot of it has to be be attributed to them wearing down the bullpen and having Chapman pitch all the time, too. I mean, your arm's going to get tired. The only difference between a hitting slump like you put in a pitching slump is a hitter can come out of a, a hitting slump if he plays all the time, right? He can he can adjust and he can get hot and, and streak. Pitchers are every four or five days, Jack, three, three at the least. You have to get it together for that next game. It's a little bit harder to break out of a slump as you're putting it. I mean, even if you have a bad game, Jack, to me, Ron Guidry in his 25 and three season has some bad games. He didn't pitch, he didn't pitch lights out every game, but he held the other team down where the Yankees could win the game. And Cole can't do that. Cole is, you know, Cole's either going to strike you out, walk you, or you're going to hit a home run, it looks like. So, I mean, even if he's not 100%, Jack, I expect him to keep the Yankees in the game. 
and he hasn't been able to do. That's what concerns me, Jack. Not that well, they won not, the last game he pitched. They took him out very in, early. Not because Andrews, the bullpen did a in great spite, job. In spite of him, right? In, in spite, spite of him, him, right? In spite of him, and and that's not what you want from your ace. You want your ace, even though he's having a bad game, to keep the team maybe at three runs or whatever. You know, give give the team a shot. And Cole hasn't been able to do that yet. And you know, Jack, I don't know if you keep him in more innings if that helps him. Maybe it does. Maybe so what you're losing, keep pitching. You know, maybe pulling him out after three innings does nothing for him except keep him at the same spot. His pitch count was getting high. Is it, well, his pitch, it wasn't just because of the pitch count. You know, uh, he the way he was going, let me tell you this. Uh, just let me backtrack slightly to Ryan Guidry. <clears throat> he couldn't have had many bad outings, Mac, in 1978. He was 25-3 record with a 1.74 ERA. So I don't remember many bad games. But what Garrett Cole does, that extra effect, Mac, you look to him as being, in a way, the leader of the team. Right. He has that leadership personality, more so than Aaron Judge as a leader when he's there. You see him rallying the team. And if Garrett Cole isn't going to pitch like an ace, it affects the leadership qualities too. That doesn't mean his teammates don't like him a lot personally. They probably like him a great deal. But if he's trying to lead and rally the troops when he's not pitching, in the back of your mind is Garrett, you know, get it together yourself. We need you to perform more than we need a rah-rah guy. The rah-rah stuff is great if the player's performing. If someone's not performing, you know, it, it it affects the leadership role, which could affect the rest of the team indirectly. Oh, uh, uh, great point, Jack. Great point. So we got Carter due to come in. We'll see if he gets it. But we're going to start with the NHL news uh, right now, just in case Carter has problems getting in because – he does have problems with his connection. Did you hear what happened with coming in late with Shaq comes into the TNT studio a little late, a minute before they were to go on the air, and Kenny Smith is joking with him, giving him a hard time, and Shaq made it out like he was angry, like he was going to hit Kenny Smith if he didn't shut up. You know? So well, I really don't have to worry about Carter with that. Well, speaking of the devil, uh, Carter is in. And let's bring up Carter, our NHL expert, talk a little bit about hockey today. How you doing, Carter? Hey, guys. How you doing? Not too bad. How about yourself? Hi, uh, pretty good. How's school going? Everything going good for you? Yeah, everything's uh, everything's good so far. So Excellent. Excellent. You're not failing out at any classes because of all this work you're putting in for us, right? No, no. Okay. All right. All right, Carter. So, folks, Carter B., our resident Thursday NHL expert knows a lot about hockey. He's a New York Islander fan through and through, but he's very, very fair when it comes to the other teams, even the teams that are rivals of the Islanders. He still holds back his bias and gives us what he thinks, which is really important. Unlike Jack, who is just a Yankee homer. So no matter what we say about the Yankees, the Yankees will always be better. So I was a guy who the only person you heard in the media who predicted the Yankees would have a losing record this year. I really? want to be proven wrong. I'm rooting against myself, but keep that Very in true. mind. Very true. I, I I forgot that point, Jack. I forgot. It's so ridiculous that I forgot is what happened there. So anyway, Carter, uh, let's get to the NHL. Um, it seems to me, 
and I'll give I'll give a I'll give a few scores here first. And, and Wednesday night is very light always in hockey. When you come in, there's only like five games they play. Other times they're playing like 15, 20 games at once. But last night, the Oilers beat the Stars five to two. The Knights beat the Capitals four to three in overtime. Kraken, break up Kraken, beat the Avalanche three to two. Chicago beats Coyotes three to one. Now, Carter, in the standings, from what I'm reading. It looks like the Eastern Conference is all set. Wild cards, seedings, everything. Every their teams are in. Am I am I correct saying that? Uh yeah, every team that uh that can clinch a playoff spot is in right now. So at this point, we're just waiting to see who's playing who. So with that being said, do you still consider the Tampa Bay Rays the favorite to win that Eastern Conference? A lightning. Oh, sorry. What did I say? Race? Race, yeah. You're thinking yes, baseball, yes, Mac. I mean, Carter, that's one of the things that Mac and myself, we discussed a little before the show. Uh, but, and then, yeah, then answer Mac's question, please, about the lightning. Uh, this hockey season, it seems to be going a little too long. Maybe they should move it up. Uh, maybe it's coming to an it's ha, It's ending while the NBA playoffs are going on, so it's hard to get the spotlight on it with baseball beginning the NFL draft. It's running into other things. Maybe there's a better way to, you know, do the season. Maybe cut it a little short of the regular season. I, I don't know. Uh, well, uh, I'll start with the second thing. I mean, I, I don't really see a problem with the way the NHL season is. Um. I know usually it starts like early October, so this year is a few weeks behind schedule. Um, you know, but but for the most part, I, I usually don't see a problem with an 82-game season plus playoffs. It usually, uh, you know, it usually runs a pretty good schedule over the course of the over the course of the year. So, um, but to, but to answer the Tampa Bay question, I uh, I would have to think they're the favorite to most. I mean, obviously they're the uh, you know they're the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. So as soon as they get knocked off, then um, you know we could start talking about other teams like Florida and Carolina. But for now, uh, you know I definitely have to think that you know Tampa's the uh, the favorite to win the East again. Tampa Bay Ray Lightning. That's what I. That's their name. No, no. But Claude, you mentioned the schedule, the eighty-two games. Coach Gallant to the Rangers. I won't say he was complaining, but he was discussing that. The Rangers really don't have enough time to practice because of the NFL's and NHL schedule. And all the teams have that issue because they're constantly traveling. And you hear the term practice makes perfect. Now, obviously, nothing compares to game situations, but teams just don't get to practice time once the season begins. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I don't know where you heard that, but I... I... Again, I highly doubt he said that. I just, I, I don't know. I just don't think there's any issue with the way the, the league is. I don't hear any other coach complaining about it. So, uh, you know, I really don't have much more to say than that. Yeah, I think I think that the, the you know, few week delay is what really hurt them. If you want to talk, get into the, you know, NBA and the NFL draft. If it ran normally, uh, we'd be in the playoffs uh, already. No problem. Um. Carter, the West is a different story, right? The West is still way up in the air. I, I think you've got Calgary, who's 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 clinched uh, the Wild, the Blues, and the Avalanche. But there's still a lot of teams that haven't got their seating or got the wild card. 
Is the East just that much better than the West this year? Are the top teams just that much better than the Western top teams? Uh, that's definitely the way it looks from looking at the standings anyway. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting to see how both conferences play out sometimes. It used to be the other way around where the West was right. more of the uh, of the powerhouse and the East was a bunch of question marks. So, um I mean, looking at the West again, I, I've I've said this on the show before. I've said this to a couple of my friends in the past that, um, you know, I basically see Colorado and I see a bunch of question marks and maybes with the Western Conference. So um, to me, it's really going to be interesting to see who comes out of the West this year. I really think it's it's more wide open than I, you know, than I can remember it in recent memory. So, um, you know, I mean, once once it's all said and done, there's a legit you know, there's a legit argument for all eight teams in that Western Conference to make it to the Cup. I mean, you watch the games East and West. I've I've caught a couple. And it, it just seems to me, now I'm not counting the Avalanche because they're, they're a very good team. Um, but it seems to me that when I watch the Eastern games play, it's just more physical. It's a little bit more faster than these other than, than the Western teams. And I know there's cycles, right? In every sport, there's a cycle where one conference is better than the other. And I don't think, and honestly, Carter, without counting the avalanche, that any Western team right now could beat the top six teams in the East. I really don't believe, just watching them play the games that I do catch, I don't think I don't think they could beat the top six teams uh, coming out of the East, except for maybe the avalanche. And to me, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to be good hockey or not when it comes down uh, to the Stanley Cup is all I'm thinking. That's all I'm thinking, unless the Avalanche get in. Yeah, I mean, um, there are different matchups that I kind of, you know, pick and choose. I go over in my own head and see just kind of, um, you know, who who you think can beat who in certain matchups. And, uh, you know, Stanley Cup playoffs are all about matchups, right? And I, I know that's kind of, you know, cliche and a bit weird to say, but, um, you know, it all depends on who you're matching up against, you know. Uh, and most of the time, the team that wins in the Stanley Cup playoffs is the team that forces their opponent to play their style of hockey, right? So, um, you know, whether the Eastern Conference is going to force that more, you know, scoring and finesse style, or whether the West is going to force that more, uh, defensive and physicality, uh, you know, type of game. It's uh, it's really going to be interesting to see, you know, who wins it all this year. I'm excited. So so now that the Eastern is all uh, all sewed up, every team that's clinched is clinched. Who would be your dark horse? And I don't mean just pick something out of random, but a legitimate dark horse to win the East besides Tampa, uh, that you think really has a really good shot. I mean, is it Boston? You know, is it the Rangers? Is it a team like that that, you know, got it together this year? Or do you think it's one of the teams that are that are on the top of the division right now? Um, I'm going to be honest. I mean, I, I know they haven't won a series in a little bit. And, you know, I'm a little concerned about their goaltending. But um, I'm going to have to say I really like the way Toronto's played this year. Uh, you know, the, the Leafs to me have – um, you know, they've addressed a lot of their needs in the offseason. They went out and got a shutdown center line that they really didn't have in last year's playoffs against the Canadians. Um, you know, this year they're they're playing with a lot more defensive structure and accountability. And um, again, the one thing I'm concerned about is their goaltending. I just don't know if they can, 
you know, they would be playing a team like Tampa or Boston in the first round. I just don't know if their goaltending could, um, you know, could, could keep up with that. But, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you never really know, right? With the Stanley Cup playoffs, it's just, you know, get in and see what happens. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that might be a bit bold to pick a team that hasn't won a playoff series since 2004. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the way the Leafs have played this year. The Rangers have had like three shutouts in a row. I mean, if you talk about hot goaltending being the key in the playoffs, they have to be regarded as a very serious threat. Yeah, their their uh, their goalies have been good so far. I mean, obviously, you know, Igor's had an outstanding year, and um, you know, Georgiev's chipping in where he can too. So, uh, you know, on on top of their uh, their defensive structure and their goal scoring, the Rangers are you know getting some quality goaltending, which is never really a problem that they've had over the last twenty plus years. So, um, That's true. yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how far they can go this year. So, well, they have a little bit of an advantage having a really top of the line backup uh, goalkeeper because during the playoffs they could give you know you know. This started just in a uh, a breather. Well, you know, at some point, just a mental, you know, breather, and bring in their backup as opposed to other teams who might not quite have that novelty. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be important to to rest Igor as much as they can, and um, you know, I've, I've said this to a lot of my fans who root for the Rangers, and they seem to agree that I, I think the Rangers are going to go as far as Shostakin's able to take them. So. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be important to have Igor healthy and ready for round one against the, uh, who, you know, probably going to be the Pittsburgh Penguins, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, but, uh, yeah, again, I mean, the Rangers have a good, exciting team this year. They're young, they're fast, they can score, uh, you know, and, you know, something that they've, they really haven't been able to do in the past is now they can defend. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how far the Rangers can make it this year and, more importantly, how Igor does in the uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Well, a quick, quick note, Ovechekin becomes the oldest player to score 50, score 50 goals in the season. Congratulations to him. I want to talk to you a little bit about the Canadian um, Major uh, Hockey League, the OHL, WHL, OMJHL. Uh, they will have their championships Playing the crown of champion, and then of course they'll have their their uh, their series where they go for the Memorial Cup. <clears throat> First of all, I think it's great that they're finally all being able to play up Canada, and, and you know a lot of people, uh, the hockey fans will. I know they'll watch the junior hockey leagues, whether it's Canadian or or whatever, just to see these new young kids coming up. Um, so Carter, with with COVID that has interrupted almost everything the last few years. Um, you know, seasons and, and championships and playoffs. Um, it's good to see this, right? I mean, we could take a peek at what Canada has as far as their younger players go, and it helps other teams uh, in the draft and, and to and to get them uh, ready to for the, some prospects coming out of Canada. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it, it's nice to see those those uh, minor hockey leagues finally, you know, getting back to a somewhat normal schedule. Uh, obviously 2020 and 2021 were pretty, uh, you know, pretty messed up in terms of their scheduling for them. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be nice to see all the prospects, you know, uh, coming out of Canada, the U S Russia. I mean, there's, 
there's really so many countries represented within those three leagues. So, um, you know, it's always fun to watch the Memorial Cup. It's always fun to see the three teams that come out of it, um, you know, battle for the uh, for the ultimate prize. And um, again, we'll, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But that that's one that I'm really going to pay attention to this year. Carter, I mean, I want to get back to before where I heard about Coach Gallant with the practice time. Today's New York Post. It came out if you Google it. But he says he's not worried about the lack of practice time. He'd rather have a well-rested team, which is interesting. I guess that's a difference in philosophy between coaches. Some coaches might run a team ragged and keep practicing over and over, and they might be exhausted. And other coaches will go very, you know, much easier on their teams during practice, wanting them to be rested for the game. But, you know, it is an issue that he doesn't really have the option of practicing as much as he'd want with his team, but it doesn't concern him, you know, according to the New York post story today. Okay. Carter, Carter with, with uh, say you're a coach right now and, and your team's wrapped up the playoffs. You got a few more games to go. Do you sit your stars? Do you just take them out of the, out of the thing? Let, you let the other guys play. Do you play your stars sparingly or do you just let them go at it? Go full bore all the time. Um, I think it depends on, you know, on, on where we're at in the playoffs. I mean, if you're a team like Colorado or Florida, that's, you know, well beyond everybody else in your conference, I think it's, you know, you you can give your stars a little bit of a break, but, um, you know, if you're still fighting for a playoff spot, like, uh, like Nashville or Dallas or Vegas, um, absolutely not. I'm, I'm playing my stars all they can. I mean, you know, we need those points. We need those points bad. And, um, you know, the, uh, the the Stars are going to help us do that. Do you think Florida's better than they were last year? Because they had a really good, good team, and they were even money, it seemed, against Tampa Bay when they played in the playoffs last year. But the Lightning, you know, prevailed one obviously better team, you know, come playoff time. Is this an illusion with, you know, the Florida team? Or have they taken a step forward from last year? What do you think? Um. I mean, definitely, if you look at their their record, especially their goals against and goals for, I think they've taken a huge step forward. Um, you know, I think guys like Huberdo and Barkov have really taken a step offensively. Uh, outside of that, though, I think it's kind of hard to compare because you're comparing a 56-game schedule to an 82-game schedule. So, obviously, the uh, you know, they're going to get more chances to to uh, you know to prove themselves over the course of the 82-game uh, rather than the shortened schedule. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at Florida, they're, they're, they're a scary team. I, I wouldn't want to run into them in the playoffs. I mean, um, again, they're, they're another team that hasn't won a playoff series in a little while, but, uh, you know, looking at their forward core, I mean, they have four lines that can score. They have, uh, you know, six defensemen that aren't afraid to rush the puck and score themselves. And they have two great goalies in net. So, um, you know, Florida is one of the few teams in the Eastern Conference that I'd be genuinely scared of if, uh, you know, if I were to run into them in the playoffs. You know, we hear about tanking in sports, and obviously no team is trying to lose. But in the NHL, is there any one particular team that you sense is taking their foot off the accelerator and they're thinking, you know, we, let's just get ready for playoff time. We'll just make the playoffs and not worry. We don't want to. We don't have to win that badly now. Is could it that be the Tampa Bay Lightning looking to three peak 
figuring, okay, it's not urgent that we win now, but we'll be ready come playoff time. Um, I, I don't really believe in tanking in the NHL. I think it's just, uh, you know, if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. There's really nothing more to it than that. So well, I mean, the coach resting um, his players a little more, not quite going all out to win with the urgency, you know, you'd normally expect. I wouldn't call that tanking. I mean, they're, they've clinched a playoff spot. I think it's no, just... tanking. It's an expression. That's what I meant from the other sports. Are they just trying to peak for the playoffs and that's it, that the regular season really isn't that crucial as long as they know they're going to be in the playoffs? Uh, I, I mean, I guess I, I think, you know, Tampa knows what they can do in the playoffs. I don't really think they have to rest players in order to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have an answer for that, if I'm being honest. I mean, Carter, you're like me. I don't believe in pulling your starters for anything. I don't care if you're the number one seed anywhere. Let them guys play. Keep it going. Keep the, the mo- keep that juice flowing. Don't be giving them a chance to sit back and start thinking about other things besides what they're doing. I'm all for that. I, I hate I hate the, the, the thought process well. You know, we're going to get a bye this week, so that means we're in better shape when, in at least half of the cases, the ones that get the bye end up losing because uh, they're not as ready as the other team coming to get them. Carter, thanks for coming in as you do every Thursday. We love having you on. Uh, Carter B., folks, with the NHL report for us. And, Carter, you have a great Thursday, my friend. Take care. All right, guys. You too. Have a good week, Carter. So there you go, folks. Carter B., our NHL expert who joins us. Running 30 every Thursday. And of course, with the playoffs coming, uh, we'll want to have them on and give us uh, in depth look at the teams in the playoffs and, and what's going on. So, folks, we're going to take our first time out for today. Um, we're going to be back on either side. We got a lot of baseball still to get to, NBA playoffs. And later in, on in the show, we'll have on our special guest. So, stick with us. And if you like boxing, that's a hint. Uh, he'll be here about 9.30. So, folks, stick with us. We'll be right back after these messages. You worked too hard. You ate too much. The cheesecake made you greedy. Let your aching head and stomach hear this message from old Speedy. Alka-Seltzer, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Those speedy bubbles relieve your upset stomach and headache fast. For acid indigestion alone, Alka-Seltzer Gold. Oh, what a relief it is. What a relief. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. <laughs> I'm here to say I am the top banana in the world today. Now you know the best bananas in the land. So don't slip up. 
with an inferior brand. When is it, Gigi? It's a very good day to buy bananas. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. Ooh, can Nina come over? I'm not sure about our new friend. I wonder if there's been any drinking going on. Alcohol at her age can lead to so many bad things. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you too. Okay, how about tasting the stew and telling me what you think? Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. When the job is done, this guy will be ready to dig into something mighty good to eat. How do you handle a hungry man? The manhandlers. One of the manhandlers is Campbell's Vegetable Beef. Gets a man-sized supper off to a good hot start. Mmm, good. The manhandlers. If you talk, your they will hear you. Every single time. Now we're getting killed. Yeah, well, Kyle's not here. How come? Kicked off the team. Didn't Tim tell you? Kyle's some other kids got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Come on, it's a first offense, right? That we know of. But why should that matter? He knew not to drink. I've made it clear to Matt that's what we expect from him. What have you said to Tim? Um... Nothing really. You know, a lot of kids try it at this age, so. Yeah, well, a lot of kids don't try it too. I'm not saying that Matt's gonna be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink, how's he gonna know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, Bill, but they hear more than you think. Talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning. You're listening to the Mac and Jack Sports Show on Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show. We're on live 8 to 10 a.m. Thursday through Sunday. We're on YouTube, Roku TV, Twitter, Facebook, and a bunch of other ones that we'll be on later. Uh, Jack, we just had Carter in here talking a little bit about the hockey and the playoff pitcher and maybe who he thinks might do something. So we covered hockey, and I want to get into the NBA playoffs right now. Uh, later on in the show, folks, we'll be having Ben Doughty in, uh, boxing author, be talking a little bit about uh, Wilfred Benny. from the U.K., Mac, from the Direct U.K. From yes, yes, from the U.K., and, and he'll be talking about Wilfred Benitez, 
his biography, I guess you could say, he wrote on him, The Fifth King. He was boxing, of course, when Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, Roberto Durant. And, uh, I mean, they had unbelievable amount of uh, welterweight talent back then. And Wilfred Benitez was the youngest champion ever at 17. And uh, he's on to talk about his rise and fall, especially after a Hearns fight. Oh, he fell after uh, Tommy Hearns put a hurt on him. So, anyways, we'll be talking about that. And, of course, we got some big boxing coming up, too, since he's over there with Fury and White. We'll talk a little bit about that. But let's get to the NBA playoffs. Pretty exciting stuff, Jack. Uh, the Celtics come roaring back uh, to beat the Nets. Uh, the Celtics just got a good to great defensive team, Jack. And you saw in the second half all the turnovers uh, they forced from from Durant and uh, Irving, Kyrie Irving didn't have a big game. I think he scored 10 points, couldn't find the basket. And the Celtics just have, I think, a better team, Jack. They have better team chemistry. Their bench plays better. Their, their, their other players play better. And their defense is tenacious. And, you know, we haven't been talking about the Celtics winning the East. A lot of people said they would burn out and, and all this good stuff. But they're legit, Jack. They're really legit. And I think they got a good shot as anybody in the East. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very legit. You know, I watched the net the Celtic game yesterday, and Kevin Durant had one of his worst games. I mean, he couldn't hit a shot in the second half. And, you know, as sensational a player as Kyrie Irving is, let's forget his personality, but when all cylinders are going, he's as good a one-on-one -on -one player as anyone on the NBA. He He's just about unguardable at times. The offense never runs in a fluid way when you allow Kyrie Irving to take the ball down the court. He takes the ball down the court and guys are standing around and he's not a pass. He's not a, a, a passer who looks to hit the open man cutting for the basket. He's always looking to score, 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 score. If he gives the ball up, it's only temporary. He expects to get it back so he could score. And the Nets, I I know Bruce Bowen has played very well, for example. They've had a little complimentary help, but, you know, not so much. They're basically a two-man team. Yeah. Even when Durant and Irving are playing a great game, both of them at the same time, and the Nets are winning. They're not dominating. I mean, and the only way for them to win an NBA championship the way they are now is for Irving and Durant to be at their very best every game. And as we know in the NBA, that's not going to happen. Players, Superstar players are going to have their share of great games. They're going to have their share of okay games. And they're going to have, obviously, once in a while, a poor game. And I think with Durant and Irving, they're basically out of gas. They've run out of steam. Yesterday, it certainly looked like they were going to win, and then the Celtics overtake them in the second half. Because like I say, the Celtics have a better team chemistry. The ball is going all over the place with the Celtics. They're passing back and forth, and the Nets are basically a team just a firepower. Can Irving and Durant overpower you? We're going to have a boxing guest on later. You know the Nets are the type of fighter who takes it to you all out for knockout. He has to blow you out of the ring in the first few rounds because if he doesn't get you out of there, then you see his weaknesses. And that's what basically, you know, the Nets are. 
you know, in the first half, the Nets played more team basketball than I've seen them play in a long time. Other people were taking shots. But when it gets down to it, and the stats prove this, they're they're the most one-on-one team, you know, in the NBA. And at the end of the game, they forget the team chemistry, and they just go Durant one-on-one, Kyrie one-on-one. And even Durant was saying they just cut him off at every angle. He could not get... He could not get in the alley. He could not get a good shot off in the second half. And you got to attribute it to the Celtics. You got to you got to say they had the right game plan. And for some reason, I don't know if Steve Nash uh, has the power or not over there. But what they did in the first half was great. I mean, they looked like a, a, a complete basketball team. And that's when Durant scored 27 points. When they go down and they start playing one-on-one, <coughs> excuse me, against a good team, that's not going to work. That's just not going to work. And I, if if they get knocked off by the Celtics, they would have got knocked off by the Bucks or the 76ers or whatever. The, the team that well, they're better coached. I mean, the Celtics are better coached than the I Nets. Agree. And it's not that Steve Nash doesn't know the game. He can't coach the guys he has. The only reason Steve Nash is a coach of the Nets is because Durant and Irving wanted him there. I mean, that's the yeah. main reason. I mean, I Kenny Atkins was the coach before that. He was a disciplinarian, okay? And they wanted him out, reportedly. Yeah. The players wanted him out. Kenny Atkins did a really good job with the Nets. And they need that type of coach who tells them what to do, doesn't just ask them what they want to do. <clears throat> and Kyrie Irving, I mean, it's not that he doesn't play hard, but he doesn't sometimes play the game the right way, you know, on defense, on offense. I mean, Again, when he, you know, he's as good a one-on-one player as anyone on the game. He has certain sensational games. But when him and Durant are putting up such great numbers and the team isn't dominating, that should tell you, I mean, they're going nowhere. Now, they need a bolt of lightning out of nowhere to win for the next five. And they're going to, that bolt of lightning, you never know, could be Ben Simmons making his debut. Because the Nets are in a desperate situation and they can only hope Ben Simmons joins the Nets. And the one thing you can do maybe effectively off a long layoff is maybe play defense, okay? And they're probably telling Ben Simmons, just play great defense near the basket. That's all we want. And you never know. Maybe Ben Simmons is ready to come and make a major contribution on defense Maybe the Nets win the next two at the Barclays Center. Keep this in mind. Last year, the Nets were up 2-0 against Milwaukee, and they blew Milwaukee out, I think, in the second game. Milwaukee looked dead in the water, I mean, when they were down 2-0, yet they came back and they somehow won the series. So there's always a possibility, you know, the Nets could wage a comeback, you know. Uh, you know, let, oh, I, let's, I, I, I don't think I don't get them. I don't expect them to, to get swept, Jack. I expect the Nets to win one of the next two at least. Um, but I don't know if Ben Simmons just playing good defense is going to make that much of a difference. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what it's happens. It's funny about short series, Mac. Let's say that game one with when the Celtics won at the buzzer. Let's say the Nets had won that game, which they so easily could have. We'd be talking about a series that was one game apiece mm-hmm. and a dog fight that could go either way. You know, yeah. so the perception sometimes is, you know, in such a thin line. 
True, but you know, ifs ifs are for losers, Jack. Ifs aren't for the winners. So we'll see what happens. Uh, another action. Listen, uh, MB lives up to his reputation. This man wants it more than I've seen him want it any year he's played. I don't know if he's played injured. You don't hear about injuries. He wants to play every minute of every game. He's huge against the Raptors. Uh, the Raptors, to me, Jack, you know, they're down 3 0. They might win next game. I don't know. Um, but they're def- they're just not in the class of the 76ers. They have a good young team with no superstars. They have a good team, but they're not a championship team. And I think the 76ers are. I'm going to tell you, this playoff scenario might be unfolding very nicely for the 76ers. They're going to beat Toronto, the Raptors. Um, Raptors aren't coming back. Now, that means they would play... The Miami, in all probability, the Miami Heat. I'm assuming the Bucks beat the Chicago Bulls. They're not a lock, but they probably will. The Bucks beat them, meaning the Bucks would play the Celtics, assuming the Celtics beat the Nets. If everything is playing out, and those assumptions, I'm not really assuming it's going to happen for sure. I'm just saying the odds. It's so a that good, it's scenario a good. happens. Uh, the 76ers would play the Miami Heat, assuming they beat the Hawks, who they're up 2 nothing against. 76ers, to me, would be favored to beat the Miami Heat. Okay? They mm-hmm. would be favored. And that means they would play the Bucs Celtic winner. And by that, the Bucs Celtic winner would be pretty beat up from playing one another. So it's kind of unfolding in a nice way for them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, your scenario to me is is probably the most likely scenario that's going to happen. So you know, listen, I mean, I think any one of those four teams—the Bucks, the Celtics, the Heat, um, and and uh, uh, the Seventy Sixers—could very well uh, go and win a championship this year. I think they're all four that good. Uh, it's speaking, wide, it's really wide open, Mac. The NBA. I agree. It's really, really wide, wide open. I, I mean, still even think the, the West. I, I, still, I still think the Bucks are the best team. The Celtics are right there, Jack. But it, they it's lost, be, yeah. I mean, but they lost yesterday. Uh, Surprise I, loss at home to the Bulls, and it's one up. DeRozan played a great game for yeah. the Bulls, scored at 41 points. And all of a sudden, the Bulls go back home. The Bulls have been floundering a bit. And now there's some hope there. It's best three out of five. Mm-hmm. And they have three of those next five games on their home court, you know. And uh, yeah. it's, you know, they gave the Bulls some hope there. Yeah, what happens true. if the Bulls win the next game at home? All I don't of a sudden, it's... the Bucks are under real pressure. I think the Bucks should win when all said and done because I think they were a better team at the end of the day. I agree. But, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes it for exciting. It makes it exciting anyway. Um, Giannis, of course, did his thing, and 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 you know, uh, problem yeah. with Milwaukee. I mean, they don't play their bench players that much to make enough of a contribution. Oh, no, middle they don't get the, they don't get enough. They don't contribute on offense that much. They don't take too many shots. Their bench. I yeah. mean, so Milwaukee basically goes with you know a deep five for the most part. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, in the middle and of also, holiday, and yeah, yeah. You also had, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Warriors. Oh, let's let's get to uh, uh, today's games. You got the Grizzlies and the Timberwolves. Uh, should be a good game. 
the Timberwolves surprised, I think, a lot of people beating the Grizzlies the first game. The, the Grizzlies kind of came back and shut down the Timberwolves, which is a lot of people expected. But great two young teams. I mean, they've both got a great future ahead of them. The Grizzlies still could make some noise. I mean, the Grizzlies do have a good enough team to do that. Um, and you got Dallas at, at you know at the at the Jazz. They were tied up one one apiece. I think that series depended on you know the health of Joe Djokovic. Am I saying it right or Jovic? No, Luca, Luca. Luca, sorry, I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah Djokovic with Denver. They're down yeah, for yeah, nothing to the Warriors. So anything, even yeah. the healthy Djokovic, Denver. Right, Luca. Right. Depending on Luca, uh, how he plays and that, I think that could go either way. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just not crazy about the Jazz and the Warriors. Uh, hey, they're healthy, and they found themselves a new superstar over there that they got to watch now. Um, they may, they may go, Jack. They might go. They might, they might be able to beat the Suns. I, I, I think they got a good shot. Hey, listen, the Suns are in a lock to advance. The Pelicans upset them in Phoenix the last game. Yeah. It's one up, and Devin Booker suffered a, you know, an injury that might keep him out of a couple of games. Yeah, yeah two I games. Mean, it's, and if Devin Booker's out going to New Orleans, I mean, chances are the Suns are going to win, okay? But the thing is, you never know, it might go seven games. And if it goes seven games, you might figure, okay, they beat New Orleans, they got that scare out of the way. But it takes something out of you for the next series because, you know, you push to the limit, you know, mentally, physically. So, I, you know, I know we have differences of opinion sometimes on rest. But I think in the NBA playoffs, if you can make short work of your opponent and get ready for the next round, you're a lot better off. I guess. I mean, as you said, the Bucks had to come back to beat uh, the Nets last year. I, I guess I, I think it has a lot to do with the chemistry, Jack. Even if you're down or up or whatever, you, normally the team with the best chemistry. It's not always about talent, right? We know that. We know that NBA is not all about talent. You got to have good chemistry. You have a superstar, that's great. But you got to have the team that's either built around that superstar to help them out, uh, like the Bulls and then and the other teams that won that. I mean, Scottie Pippen uh, was a great NBA player, maybe a little underrated, but. Uh, that was all about Jordan. The team supported Jordan, and and, and uh, you know, I, I just I just think that the chemistry has to be really, really good for you to win the NBA championship. The Bucks have great chemistry. Now the Bulls had the chemistry with Jordan, despite yeah. his normal enormous talents and dominance. He blended into the team concept, sure. and uh, one of the things about Jordan that people don't give him credit for despite his personality that may have rushed people the wrong way, he was coachable. He yes. may have disagreed with things, but he did the triangle that Phil Jackson wanted to have. He didn't push his power to the point where he insisted the team do this or that, otherwise he's going to sit out. Yeah. You know, he expressed unhappiness, you know, at times. And he gave his GM, Jerry Krause, obviously a hard time. But he adhered to the team concept at the end of the day. I agree. I agree. I think that's what made the Celtics so good and the Lakers so good and the Detroit Pistons so good and on and on. I think they all played within the team concept, even though they had superstars on the team. Everybody seemed to step up when they needed them to step up. And, of course, the superstars took over when they had to take over. I think that's a lot more than depending on one or two players, as in Brooklyn's case, 
what if they don't play well, forget it. And even if they do play well, you still may lose. So I, I just think, you know, the teams with the chemistry to me right now, anyway, you know, are, are the are the Celtics, are the Bucks, even though they're down one to one, are tied one to one. And I think the Warriors have that chemistry too, especially with Curry back. So, you know, I think in a, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting come the end of the year. So let's get to the MLB scores from last night, Jack. Milwaukee beats Pittsburgh four to two. Cleveland takes two from Chicago, eleven to one and one and nothing. Philly outslugs the Rockies nine to six. The Dodgers, I know the Braves are happy to see the Dodgers go. They won five to one. The Padres six, the Reds nothing. Baltimore, I think the the, the tennis was three thousand people. BCA's one nothing. The Rays beat the Cubs eight to two. The Yankees get by uh, Detroit five to three. Big game from Rizzo again, batting well. Uh, Falefica, he had a good game too. Um, the Angels behind uh, Otani six zip. Um, the Cards beat the Marlins two to nothing. San Francisco gets one from the Mets. KC beats the Twins. Seattle beats Texas four to two. So. Um, I mean, it's still early, Jack. I'm, I'm watching the teams. Uh, you, Max, saying it's early? I don't believe it. You're the same guy after one homestand three games in the season who starts worrying about things. You, of all people, saying it's early? I am yeah, you're, <laughs> yeah I, I did kind of flip-flop on that. Uh, I, I Listen, these games you can't get back either, Jack. I mean, I know it's early, and we're waiting for, you know, for the different players to kick in, which they, some, most of them will, some won't. But you can't get these games back. Can I say so, something that bothers me about it being early? What you just said, I didn't realize and I didn't know. You just said the Orioles had 3,000 people at attendance. Eight. Eight. Oakland. Oakland. They're at Oakland. They had 3,000 fans. At Oakland. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, and they've gotten off to a decent start. Oakland. People yeah. didn't think they would. They're around first place or close. Yeah. The last I looked, and yeah. wow, that kind of bothers me because they lost the Oakland Raiders, and it's important that the Oakland Athletics stay put. But, you know, I'm against owners moving teams, except if you put a good product on the field and the fans are not showing up, now I've got a problem, you know, with the city. Can they support a franchise if they're getting a decent product and the owner's trying to put some money into it. Now, I know the A's have sold off players, traded players like Matt Olson, for example, to the Atlanta Braves for prospects. But, you know, still, you know, you got to show up at the ballpark unless, you know, the team is making no effort at all. And the A's are playing, you know, well to start the no, year. They're playing okay. Yeah, listen, the A's are always, you know, the A's, the, the A's are very rarely in last place, Jack, with all the stuff they do. I mean, they get the prospects and they play them, and uh, good for them. I mean, they seem to always, at the end of the year, be in the top three at least. So, I mean, listen. Well, they contend, mean, for, play, they contend yeah. for playoff positions. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know what you want. I mean, I imagine they would love to hold on to some of those superstars. Maybe that would draw the fans in more. I don't know. But like you said, nobody thought the A's were going to do anything with all the people they they uh, let go of. And man, you know, been... you th Mac, you think of franchises like Baltimore. They they have the Ravens. They don't have an NBA team. They have the Washington Wizards kind of next door. They don't have an NHL team. 
in Baltimore. You know, even though they have the Capitals next door in Washington, but it's not the same. It's not their no. team. And it's a storied franchise, the Orioles, even though they're in last place. They have a lot of young talent. They're going to have better days. In two, three years, the Orioles are going to have a competitive team. They really are. If they all stay. Yeah, if they all stay. If they all stay right, they right. Well, they have the young talent that will be on the yeah. contracts. I think the Orioles are going to be fine in a couple of years. I really do. Yeah. It, but you hope the people turn out as the community. You know, the attendance hasn't been great in Baltimore either. That's why I think I misheard you and I jumped to conclusions, you know. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, that's, there's always a city that doesn't have a team that's willing to open up its pocketbook and give state funds, city funds to get a team to, you know, Agreed. come to their place. Agree. And, and 3,000, I mean, that's a high school, you know, football game up here, 3,000 people. That's nothing. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. But, you know, Jack, in California, there's so much stuff to do. It's not like a lot of states, right? A lot of states you got, as you mentioned, you know, in certain states you really don't have – you know, Hollywood, you don't have the beaches, you don't have the, the basketball and the and all this other stuff going on at once. I mean, I mean, the Lakers, the, the sad part is to me is that the Lakers and the Clippers are not even in the in the playoffs this year. And Oakland still can't draw, uh, you know, fans to, 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 to the park. It's kind of sad. It really is. So. Well, you know, they sold out with the Oakland Raiders, which, right. you know, you kind of feel bad that they wound up moving. I agree. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's just, it's just, listen, some, some communities can, can get Vegas. How can you commit, compete with Vegas, Jack, to give you that? I mean, I, that's one of the richest cities in the country. I mean, I mean, I don't know how anybody could be. Uh, that size of a community can compete with Vegas. I mean, that's just... Well, Vegas doesn't have a Major League Baseball team or an NBA team, but I think that's around the corner now. I do too. Because, they, do you too. know, having an NHL and an NFL team, I think it's only a matter of time. A lot of... Because a lot of people move, even from the East Coast, they move to Vegas, you know, full time. Yeah. So it is a thriving place. I, listen, I agree, Jack. I, I, I 100% with you. I, I, I bet that uh, the Vegas will have all four sports there. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, as I said, folks, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up after break, we got uh, Ben Dowdy, who's going to be talking about, yes, sir, Wilfred Benitez, his book. And uh, we'll be talking about him. We'll be talking about the fights uh, coming up, well, the fight, Fury and White. I don't know how much good of a fight it will be, but – uh, we shall see. So, folks, second break for today. We'll be back on the other side uh, with our special guest, Ben Dottie. We'll be right back uh, after these messages. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big, fluffy bun. It's a very big, fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. You hear the word asthma. You probably think of shortness of breath. 
coughing or inhalers. Lots of things can trigger asthma, but the fact is that asthma doesn't just attack, it can kill. But with proper medical management, asthma is controllable. If you experience shortness of breath, wheezing, tightness in your chest, or persistent nighttime coughing, you may have asthma. See your doctor and get the facts. You'll breathe easier. For more information, call 211-INFO-LINE. A message from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Keeping Connecticut healthy. I heard you want to be a Frito Bandido like me. You do? Then you must sing the Bandido song. Let's sing together. You just follow the bouncing Fritos corn chips bag. Ay, 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 ay. I am the Frito Bandido. Hey, I like Fritos corn chips. I love them, I do. I want Fritos corn chips. I'll get them from you. Ay, 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 ay. Oh, I am the Frito Bandito. Give me Fritos corn chips and I'll be your friend. The Frito Bandito, you must not offend. Now, boys and girls, you are Frito Bandidos too. You sing the Frito Bandito song and you look for crunchy Fritos corn chips. That's nice. Munch, 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 Killed. Yeah, well, Carl's not here. How come? Kicked off the team. Didn't Tim tell you? Carl's mother kids got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Come on, it's a first offense, right? That we know of. But why should that matter? He knew not to drink. I've made it clear to Matt, that's what we expect from him. What have you said to Tim? Um, nothing really. You know, a lot of kids try it at this stage, so... Yeah, well, a lot of kids don't try it, too. I'm not saying that Matt's going to be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink, how's he going to know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, Bill, but they hear more than you think. Talk. They hear you. For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I mean, you can see right now, without LeBron, Lakers are, are struggling. Let me tell you about a team I hate, all right? I know the Dallas Cowboys fan is here, so I had to make sure he knew how much I hate this oh, Already, I've often said that the people who run baseball, they try very hard to ruin it. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't have a problem saying it to his face. Oh, Brooklyn. Hey, isn't he? Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac and Jack Sports Show, live Thursday through Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m. I'm your host, Mac, with your co-host, Jack, as we guide our first day of the week, Thursday. Sunday, of course, is our last day. A couple things. Friday, tomorrow, we'll be having on Byron Williams, our NFL analyst, Keith Angle from TGI Sports Talk, and the Philly sports guy who messaged me earlier asking for the link, Jack. He didn't know it was Thursday, so... Um, panicked, all panicked out. So I, I put his mind to ease, reminding me it was only Thursday. Uh, Saturday, we have our debate show with Dr. Paul Semendinger, um, 8 to 10 a.m. as we talk about some of the best topics in sports, kind of debate them. And then Sunday, 
We changed our format. We're going to be doing our mock draft special, Jack, where we're going to have on our guests talking about who their picks would be if they were the GM, who our picks would be versus them, and our picks. You know, I'll take the Giants. She'll take the Jets. Jim will take the Cowboys. And Mac, if you pick a player, does that mean he's off the board for the next guy to pick? That's a great question, like Jack. I'm picking I for the Jets. Right, I didn't someone I have originally all targeted, he goes before the fifth selection, let's say, where the Jets go fifth and tenth. That means I can't pick him, correct? No, I, I, I think you still can make your pick because there's no guarantee, guarantee that that's what they're really going to do. So, for instance, if I have the Giants and I pick uh, – Joe Schmo, and it comes to you, you can pick Joe Schmo too if you want because there's no guarantee that the Giants will do as I'm saying. So your pick is still valid. You also got the opportunity. Realistically, it doesn't work that way, Mac, because chances are whoever the Jets, you know, their second pick, maybe they'll get their – Hutchinson is probably going to – he'll be off the board. No one should pick him. Amongst, right. you know, because he's going first, second at the very worst. Jets and right. Giants are not going to have a chance at him. Okay. But after that, everyone else might be in play. But sure. by the time the Jets go 10th, you know, one of the guys I might like is going to probably be picked in the top five. Well, so I can't pick him with my second pick, which is 10th overall. Well, so you would have to, you would have to figure that all into your your draft pick, for instance, He's my probably going to be available. My two draft picks, I I've taken in consideration what players would probably be taken before the Giants get to who them. might be who might right yeah. who might um, realistically might be available. We have a 50-50 chance of getting right, right. And if you can also we should have a backup pick if he isn't available. You know, our second. That, yeah, you know, that's a good idea, Jack. That's a good idea. You know, I didn't pick. think about that. Maybe we'll tell them that on Sunday uh, when we go over our mock draft. Maybe we'll talk to them about that, you know, because, you know, by the time it gets down to the Eagles and, you know, he's picking Hutchinson, you know, that's just, you can't do that. That's just ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Right, so, right. So maybe we should all do a draft when one of the first guy picks a player, the next guy can't pick him. He's off our board. That's, you know, that's, that's a good the idea. way we should do it. That's a good idea, Jack. See, I, Matt, I, I think... we're, 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 we're prepping for the show while we're on the air. This should have been done backstage. I mean, Mac, I you see, well, you're this... too busy to put time in the show when we're off the air, Mac. Yes, and now we're yes. trying to figure this out in front of the viewers. Yes, Anyone you know, have a suggestion what we should do? View, you know, view, send it in to Mac, is, and Mac will study it out when he gets the okay. chance. This is why we call it your personal sports network, Jack, because yeah, you know personal. they're involved in every facet. They're involved in the meeting. They're involved in a production meeting, Matt. We, we had a meeting with the viewers just now, Jack. Isn't it? That's pretty cool. Whoever, who else does that, Jack? No one else does that. No, no, nobody else does that. There's probably lots of reasons why not, but we share everything, and that's you know that's that's why we are your personal. Sports Mac, network. you're setting me up talking about all these. Prima Donna wide receivers, and I know you're with the Giants. You're eyeing a wide receiver right off the bat to throw me off. No, I don't think so, Jack. You'll, you'll be. I think you'll be surprised at my picks, uh, especially one of them. You know, I, I believe it or not, and folks, we do have Ben Doughty backstage, so we're going to get to him in a real quick second here. Um, believe it or not, I was right on Saquon Barkley. I was right 
on uh, on Daniel Jones. I was right on uh, Dexter Lawrence, and I was right on the receiver, the young receiver that came in from Florida. Those were in my top picks, and I was right on them. I missed Thomas. I missed Pert because Pert from UConn. I didn't think anybody would pick anybody from UConn, but Thomas I missed. But those those five picks I got right. So just to warn you, I kind of I kind of have I have a feel for this stuff. So it should be interesting. So I can't wait to hear your picks, Jack. That's gonna that's, and I can't wait to argue you about them. That's gonna be fun as heck. Anyway, and one other thing before we get to Ben, folks, trades are considered. So if Jack wants to say they're trading for DK Metcalf, that's his pick. You can do that if you want, if you wish to, Jack. So it's gonna be almost the same as we would backstage right now, folks. We got a big treat for you. Uh, we got a, a an author, a boxing, a boxing man. Wrote a great book on Wilfred Benitez, right? The Rise and Fall, The Fifth King. And uh, uh, people that are our age and maybe, you know, close to our age, remember when the welterweight division was out of sight. They had all the stars back there. And Wilfred Benitez was one of them. Great record, great boxer, youngest champion ever. I mean, I can't wait to talk to Ben about all the stuff and, and, of course, you know, go ahead, go ahead, Jack. The welterweight division is hot today, but the difference between then and now, they were willing to fight one another, and they did back then. Today, they don't. Terrence Crawford, Errol Spence, the other league guys in and around. It's a chess game today, you know, but in the past, they went right to it. I don't know. I, I think I think uh, Sugar Ray Leonard did pick and choose a little bit. Let's bring up Ben and see what's going on. Ben, how you doing today? I'm good, Mac. Although that's um that's a bad start with saying Sugar Ray Leonard picked and picked and choose. I think you know I get where you're coming from on that. That you know Leonard was perhaps he was the forerunner of the more Mayweather-esque approach and the businessman who looked at the risk reward. But but Leonard was motivated by challenges, unlike Floyd Mayweather, for instance. He was motivated first and foremost by challenges and boxing himself into a corner. And when you put monsters like Hearns and Duran at their peak, you know Duran. About he certainly it was well to work peak that night. I know that he his career was kind of interesting in peaks and troughs straight after that. Uh, but when you put monsters like Hearns and Duran in their prime, and also put Marvin Hagler, who he's been more on the slide by revisionist history, but at the time he was awesome, undefeated for eleven years, the middleweight king by nobody. I don't think we can accuse Ray of picking and choosing. I, I I agree with you. I mean, there was there was reason for it, and I understand the reason, as you said. I mean, you're fighting uh, the best fighters in the world. I mean, where you know, Mayweather wasn't really fighting the best fighters in the world. Uh, so I don't compare it with that. I just say that boxing has done this, well, throughout its history to some point or another where people have kind of ducked other people at certain times in their career, waiting for their prime to maybe go up or down a little bit, Ben. You know, and I listen, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I mean, you're going to get in there with Thomas Hearns or you're going to fight him three times. I don't think so. That would be crazy, right? So I'm, yeah. you, you may be, that may be the end of your career. So I understand that. Um, but I want to get to you about Benitez. Benitez was I, – I watched him uh, when I was younger. I watched him fight Sugar Ray. He gave him all he could handle. Great counter puncher, great defensive fighter, a good boxer, one of the best I, I ever saw at that time. And, I, I mean, his, his record I think is 58 and, and 6 or something. I'm, I'm saying off the top of my head right now. But he was a legitimate, a legitimate uh, champion at the time. And 
I mean, was it Ben? Was it the fight with Tom Hearns that took everything out of him? Was it because of his personal career? Was it because of the promoter? What the promoter did to him? I think with Wilfred, it was a classic case of early burnout because one story that constantly emerges, and when I started researching the book, and I've been aware of it to a lesser degree just from being a, a boxing obsessive in any case, was that the father um, was rather kind of mercenary with the kids. He, you had that sense of the pushy, unfulfilled parent seeking to live vicariously through the offspring. He had four sons who were always going to be boxers, although only three of them actually turned professional, all at 15. And, you know, it was this idea, usually you get a father who who didn't achieve certain things perhaps he would like to have achieved, you know, in, in his in his reveries. So he decides that the, the children inherit that kind of obligation. The thing with Wilfred, as well as, they used to scrap in a schoolyard in the South Bronx, because some people think Wilfred was born in Puerto Rico, but in actual fact, although he kind of came out of Puerto Rico, he was born in New York. And in there's a school called PS24, sorry, PS124 in the Bronx, near apparently East Tremont and 77th street something like that it would mean more to jack than it does to me to be fair um and um the dad when wilford was five years old the dad would draw a ring with some chalk in the schoolyard and in the manner of a carnival barker he would draw up trade and charge a dollar or maybe 50 cents depending on market forces on a particular day admission to and, and he challenged the local kids to box with his sons and so wilford was slugging it out with older boys uh so the legend goes from five years old for which he'd been given like 50 cents or a dollar for his day's work which is probably a pretty good introduction to the boxing's economics, to be fair. Um, and um, after that, he supposedly moved back to Puerto Rico and he had his first amateur fight, supposedly age seven, you know. Um, and as well as having a, quite a lot of amateur fights, uh, according to the record, at a young age, he was sparring very full-blooded with guys like Esteban de Jesus when he was only 12 years old, which as much as it no doubt went towards the forging of this incredible fighter, who obviously was massively naturally talented anyway, no matter what you did with him. Uh, I think no doubt the brain and body of a child were exposed to quite a lot of adult punishment when it, when it really shouldn't have been. And also, he was, you know, the earliest footage you can find on YouTube of Wilfred Benitez is from 1973, something called the North American Boxing Championships televised by ABC. And they say he's 17 years of age in 1973. And he's from Carolina. He's a student from Carolina. Uh, he was actually 14 at the time because initially he had a baptismal birth certificate that said he was older to facilitate his entry into senior competition. He, you know, um, and that was why he was boxing world-class seniors when he was only a junior still. You're going to take a lot of damage because you know what? Some people say, Jack and Mac, they say, isn't it terrible to see the state he's in today? And if he can't avoid it, who can? Because of the old radar, you know, that reputation for being that wizard of defence. But I'm sure Jack will, and yourself will back me up on this. He took a lot of shots just because he was a defensive genius. He wasn't defensive-minded like Floyd Mayweather. He wasn't safety first. Wilford would have a brawl and a rail. Yes, he did wonderful things with such finesse, but for a start, he never ran. He always pretty much kept his feet planted for the most part. He wasn't Ali or Willie Pep. That wasn't his, where he was coming from. And uh, so I think Wilford had a lot of wars. And if you watch his career, a lot of it's available on YouTube. He took a lot of punches. And never mind all that, all the damage in the schoolyard, in the, in, in the ring and in the gym, and that's what I think it adds up to. And consequently, if you're going to be that good, that young, at 17, beating an all-time great to win a world title, it's probably no surprise that you're starting to maybe have a little bit on the wane by the time you're about 24, 25. And I think perhaps he, perhaps after the Hearns fight, he didn't really want it as badly as he... Did he ever really want it? Or was it just something reflectively he'd always known? Well, the Ham Show fight where he lost the decision on national television here... Didn't look like he won a round, was dreadful. I mean, that was really the beginning of the end. And I remember 
sitting in his manager, Jim Jacobs office at the time, the same Jim Jacobs who later co-managed Mike Tyson. And he was saying how dreadful Benitez looked. They couldn't understand it. And I think something may have caught up with Benitez and you can maybe cast a little light on this. The word was he never really trained as a young phenom. He just did things on natural ability, which I find it hard to believe that you could just show up and be as great as he was. Did he train when he was younger? What? Because if he didn't, that'll catch up to you later on. The constant theme is that he didn't take training so seriously and didn't care for it, um, Jack. As, and neither did his brother, Gregorio Senior, and Frankie Benitez, who was a bit of a lightweight prospect at one, one point and had a bit of touting behind him. They said Frankie in particular was notorious for not not rather be anywhere but the gym, you know, and, and, and having taking too much, uh, you know, being too attracted to the pleasures of the flesh and setting too much store by all that kind of thing. People talk about drugs as well. It's part of the story, although I must admit, it's all very murky. It's all illusion and, and anecdote based. There's no actual evidence that, that Wilfred certainly was, was massively into drugs in the way that you could say that a Tony Ayala or even a Mike Tyson was into drugs, you know. But um, no, he, he didn't like to train if he could help it. That, that does appear to be true from everything I've, just, I've uncovered. But having said that, you said it yourself. To go 15 rounds with a, with an Antonio Cervantes or with you know even with entire defence like to Harold Weston, you have to be a little bit fit. I mean, I've I've known what it's like to do three and four rounds in the amateurs, and you know you have to train for that. So, I th I mean, you know, Bruce Curry was the first real warning sign that the Harold Weston draw was first, and it, I was, it was at the Curry rematch. I wasn't at the first fight. We got knocked down a couple of times, won a disputed decision, and. Uh, but you kind of wonder, did he take Curry seriously? Because in the rematch, it was a much more focused Benitez who took care of business. And Curry was a very underrated fighter. He was elite when he was at his best. He was. He said he didn't know who Curry was. And he said he was actually supposed to fight Roberto Duran. Him and Duran was a rivalry simmering since the earliest days. And even the, the rivalry initially with um, Gregorio, was sorry, Frankie Benitez was thought to be on a collision course with Duran a little bit at some point. Uh, and there was there was that kind of rivalry between the Benitez clan and Duran from a long time ago, way back, even including, you know, because Goyo Senior, Gregorio Senior, the father of, of Wilfred Benitez, trained Esteban de Jesus when he beat Duran as well. So that rivalry was always there. He thought in 77 uh, he was fighting um, Duran. That was all the talk that was nailed on. Next minute, he's not fighting uh, Duran. He's fighting Bruce Curry. And he was like, Curry, Bruce who? And then what he acknowledged afterwards in his broken English was, I didn't know who he was. He said, then he knocked me down three times. Then I know who, who Bruce Curry is. He said, this, <laughs> yes. this time I train, this time I train, I know players, you know. That'll wake you up. That would see Benitez fight like at the Garden against, I think, Guerrero Chavez, a fighter who he stopped in the 15th round. And he was boring at times. I mean, at, at times he'd be magnificent, like when he knocked out Maurice Hope. And at other times he could kind of put you to sleep you never knew, you know, which Benitez was really going to show up. It depended the kind of the mood he was in. Which makes me wonder if he ever really wanted to be a boxer. Because another thing I noticed, Jack, having lived through his career and, and relived it all while writing this book, is the warmth for which he congratulated his conquerors. When he lost his first fight to Leonard, he immediately... You know, I mean, Duran was the master of sour grapes, OK? You know, in terms of if he ever lost a fight. Uh, Benitez hugs Ray Leonard straight away, almost as if there's this sense of relief. Maybe it's over now. Maybe all this pressure, which I've been subjected to since as early as I can remember, maybe it can all stop. Two things I want to ask you. The stoppage against Leonard 
with seven seconds to go in the fight, I thought was premature. I didn't think it should have gotten stopped. Uh, and Benitez could have easily lasted the distance the 15th round, but he apparently thought he was maybe still in the fight. At the very least, he felt he maybe needed to win that round, and he mixed it up with Leonard and changed his style that round and then eventually got dropped with enough uppercut late in the fight. Uh, should that have should that have been stopped in your view? I think it would have been a hugely controversial call if the fight had been evenly balanced. And, and I said as much in the book. Yeah. I think with Leonard, with Leonard ahead by margins of seven, four, and two points respectively, it was academic. Wilford didn't have a problem with it. Clearly, um, yeah. I never heard him complain about it. Actually, Leonard so, was winning the fight. Let's be clear yeah. about that. And Jim Jacobs said, "Jim Jacobs said, uh, I'm glad that the referee stopped it. We don't want the fight to get hurt." And you know, what we, you will remember this too. What was very fresh in the in the collective boxing consciousness at the time was Willie Classen, who died in a fight with Wilfred Sipian at, at the Garden at the Felt Forum. Uh, and he was Puerto Rican born also. And some people said that was playing on Carlos Padilla's mind when he stepped in, um, the, the specter of Willie Classen. Folks, we're talking to Ben Doughty, the author of uh, the book, The Fifth King, The Rise and Fall of Alfred, I'm sorry, yeah, of Alfred Benitez. So, uh, you know, Wilfred Benitez, yeah. Hey, Wilfred. I say Alfred. That's another one of his yeah. brothers that people forget. Mac has a lot of these tongue things with the NFL players. I'm yes. wearing off on them, I guess. I was going to talk about Wilfred Great next. No. <laughs> but anyway, folks, uh, uh, you know, this is the rise and fall of one of the one of the really the greatest boxers of all time, in my opinion, anyway, Jack. I just want to say, Mac, you mentioned a good point before. Wilfred Benitez was he's on my short list of the greatest defensive fighters in history. He was the evil Knievel of, of fighters when you think of what he did against Tommy the Hitman Hearns. And this is a peak Tommy Hearns. Benitez drops his hands and lets Hearns fire away with everything he has. And he's just moving his head, tilting it back and forth. And, he, and Hearns can't hit him. From a stationary position. I never saw anything like that. This is Tommy Hearns we're talking about. I mean, it, that was phenomenal. Can you tell us about that little sequence, Ben? Yeah, I think I referred to it in the book as like a kite um, tossing and tossing and turning in a violent gale or something like that. That kind of um but I and what I think as well, talk about Benitez being one of the finest defensive fighters in history. I think Tommy Hearns is one of the premier offensive fighters in history. I think of guys like Ray Watson, John Lewis and Tommy Hearns. When I think of sheer weapons and offensive tools and ability to set guys up and punch with either hand and, and all the rest of it, I think Hearns is right up there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, but you know what? I don't think Benitez was ever seriously trying to win that fight as, as earnestly as he might have done. I think he realised early on he was unwilling to take too many risks against a guy with that, that much fast twitch leverage. And, and, you know, Hearns looks like a skinny light heavyweight next to Wilfred in the ring, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, I think he realised that it was going to be difficult to win. Um, and it looked in the corner with this air of resignation too, because his dad, his father, who quit working with him before the Harold Weston fight, was supposedly accosted at a nearby racetrack in San Juan. And they said, your son, he's losing. And he rushed to the racetrack and invaded the corner that the, the, the elder brother Gregorio was manning up till then. And he was throwing water on him and massaging his legs and saying, what's the matter with you? Get out there and kill that guy. 
and and that's what picked him up in the Western second fight, the defence of the WBC welterweight title. Whereas if you look at the father's body language in the corner and Wilford's body language in the Hearns fight, there's this huge air of resignation. Even though the father afterwards claimed that his son had been robbed and you can't take a the title off a triple champion like that when a man just runs, he said Thomas Hearns just ran all the time, which obviously it's not true. I mean, I think Hearns kind of dominated the fight for the most part. It's not a great fight. Well, Benitez was lackadaisical early in the fight and to me got into a hole early and then started to come on. Against Roberto Duran, 1982, I think he beat a very good version of Roberto Duran. He didn't beat an old, past-his-peak Duran. It was still a very good Duran who was in top shape, in my view. He was, Jack, because, you know, he trained uh, a penal colony, the island the island of Coiba, which is about 15 miles off the coast of Panama. He wanted to train in L.A., but but um, Carlos Alita, his manager, and the ill-fated president, Omar Torrios, or whatever his name was, president of Panama, said, no, you're not going to Tinseltown to train, okay? That's not going to happen. You're going here. And, he, and it, it was just these shark-infested waters. There were no cells on the island. There was about 300 inmates. But the shark-infested waters tended to deter people from escaping or deciding to take an early leave from the place. And what was interesting, what I thought, because of the massive stigma of Namas, which he was coming off of, uh, he, he had a couple of wins in between Luigi Mancillo and um, and the other guy, Nino Gonzalez, okay? But this was his first important fight since Namas, the Chagoy Leonard surrender. And what one of his advisors said is, it's gone really well training. He says that the prisoners didn't care what Roberto did in Montreal. And uh, sorry, in New Orleans, they didn't care. Now, I thought that was really interesting that some of these people were probably guilty of some of the most heinous crimes known to men. And we're reminded that they didn't judge him too harshly on quitting against Sugar Ray Leonard. I thought it was funny. But anyway, Ray Arcel said he is the best conditioned Roberto Duran I ever saw before that fight. So all the people who like to make the excuses for Duran, I love Duran, by the way. How can you not? If you're a student of the sweet science, how can you not love Roberto Duran? But you know those people who are so blindly worshipping of him that literally none of the losses can, which is the way Duran sees it himself. I know because I spoke to him. None of those losses were, were genuine as far as he's concerned. But Wolford beat Duran, was in shape and trained hard, and it, he just lost, that's all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Can you tell people a little bit about uh, the last fight where he got his promoter, took his money, took his passport, left him in Argentina for over a year, Ben? Supposedly, yeah. What happened at the time after having lost to, um, it would have been Matthew Hilton when he was stopped in, in nine rounds by Hilton in... Uh, they fought um, in Montreal, right? Um, when um, after that fight, like, uh, and he was, you know, his trajectory was looking pretty, pretty limited at that point. He signed with a guy called Yamil Chard, who actually had managed the great kid Gavilan back in the day. He was a Lebanese guy, but had been domiciled in Puerto Rico for many years. He was a bit of a mover and shaker in that Puerto Rican circle. He he guided Wilfredo Gomez since his amateur days as well. He signed Wilfred, got him a couple of wins, and then they got him a fight in Argentina. He was supposed to fight. He was supposed to fight somebody whose name escapes me, unfortunately. But it was I think it was I think I think it was Carlos Herrera's who he fought. No, that's who he did fight. That's who he did fight. Right. He was supposed to fight somebody else. Okay. Um, but that guy accepted a fight in Luna Park the very next day. And next minute, the Rufus had already arrived. The opponent had fallen out. Then he was going to fight Carlos Herrera, who was like a kind of former contender who'd lost a title challenge to Morris Hope. He'd been knocked out in 1982 by Tony, you know, a ferocious version of Tony Ayala Jr., but he was still a bit useful. And then Wilford, um, initially the fight got postponed because, and there were all sorts of rumours in, in Argentina that Wilford was in no shape to go ahead with, with the contract. 
It was postponed for two weeks, I believe, at first. Then it was postponed again when the promoter was hit with an embargo where people seized all the money in the, in the cash office due to some dispute the promoter was involved in and they shut the place down. So they had to postpone it for another week. When Wilfred finally got into the ring, they said they said he had to be helped into the ring, according to, to contemporary reports. They had to make an X at the medical with an X across their chest and stand on one leg. And apparently Wilfred couldn't do it without stumbling. And, and one eyewitness said, Everybody was almost looking at everybody else in the room saying, is anybody, who's going to be the one to speak up and do the right thing? And nobody did. You know, as if say, the guy shouldn't be fighting. He got better by Herrera and stopped in. I found two conflicting accounts. Somebody said he was retired at the end of the sixth on the doctor's advice. There's another account that says he was stopped in the seventh. We don't have that fight to watch, so I've included both versions of possibilities in the book. So, okay, then he gets stuck in Argentina for 14 months, it would seem. Once again, there's grey areas about how long he was there for, but it seems between that you know, a year or 14 months, whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying before, we we're going to want to talk a little about the Fury White fight with you, but just wrapping up on Wilfred Benitez and how yeah. people can get your book. He's not in the best shape today. Is he? He's not. Just quickly, I'll just say, the promoter says he paid his hotel bills and he said, yes, he was paid late, but he did pay him. Other people say, no, he seized the passport and held him hostage. Some people say it's because he was disgruntled at the non-performance. The, the promoter says, no, I looked after him. And some people say he stayed here because he had to get out of Puerto Rico. That's what it was. He was a, he feared that he'd be arrested for some outstanding debt. That's why he stayed, and he stayed of his own accord. It's all part of the mystery that surrounds Wolf Benitez. You can read all about it as uh, thoroughly as I was able to investigate the whole story. Told, I hope, with style and panache. It is the fifth king, the rise and fall of Wilfred Benitez, available around the world on Amazon. It's also available in Kindle, the ebook, paperback, or hardcover there is a hardcover for people who prefer the grandiosity of that and uh really grateful to you guys allowing me to, to give it a plug on this fine show and uh, well, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely gonna buy it i'm definitely gonna buy it ben i i i, I definitely i i love wilford bernita so i'm definitely gonna buy it so jack wanted to talk to you a little bit about fury uh white uh a lot of people don't give white a, a, a real chance to beat fury a lot of people think fury will stop him I mean, you're over there. You you've seen the press conferences, probably followed a little bit. What do you What are your thoughts? Well, I look at it, Mac. You know, when you you ask yourself, what advantages does fighter B have over fighter A? Um, and I think I ask myself, how does Dylan White beat Tyson Fury? I think Tyson holds a lot of significant advantages. I mean, there's his sheer physicality and size, which has obviously been a big factor in in his career, but also. Tyson can, can stick a move and bounce on his toes if he wants to. We know that. We've seen that. He's a good boxer. He's, he's a cagey guy. We've also seen him be a bit more of a front foot assassin if he feels like it. We know he can get in a row. We know if you hit him on the chin with a potentially fight-ending shock, he's got this annoying habit of getting up. Um, and I just say to myself, we've seen Dylan White beaten at a certain level. I know the Anthony Joshua fight was a long time, so we don't necessarily think it's as relevant today as it would once have been. He's improved a lot since then. Um, but we saw him get sparked by Povetkin in early COVID era. Um, and even in avenging the loss, I didn't think he was usually impressive. I thought he looked a little sluggish and off balance, and but he got the job done. And You know, you, you can't fault Dylan White's cojones. He, he, he'll, he, he went in back in there, corrected the mistake. He will fight anybody. He's the road warrior, all the rest of it. But um, I just asked myself, how does Dylan White beat Tyson Fury? And in, unless Tyson Fury comes in radically below the kind of standards we expect of him in recent the last couple of years and i don't see him winning having said that i do think it's an intriguing fight and i'm looking forward to it 
I personally think Tyson Fury is going to steamroll Dylan White, stop him in four rounds. I don't even see it as being a fight. But I always like to make a case for the underdog. And the only way I could see Dylan White winning is with the one, you know, one big shot, one big punch, because Fury can't be hurt. I mean, and White is a big puncher. I mean, he can really hit hard with the right hand, you know. And if Wilder could put Fury down a few times and hurt him pretty badly a couple of times, I mean, you never know. That would be about his only chance. Uh, and then there's the element, Dylan White, you can't tell how you know, what kind of shape a guy's in sometimes. It could be deceiving his body build. It looks like Dylan White is in great shape. You know, that would appear to be the case. But I just think he's long in the tooth. I think Fury has every advantage skill-wise, the physicality. And I, I just have a hard time making a case for Dylan White winning this fight or coming close to it. I'm the same. Like you say, I think Tyson Fury just has more ways to beat Dylan White than the reverse is true. I struggle to see one. I mean, obviously, you never know. We 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 know it's a theatre of the unexpected and all the rest of it. But now, I mean, I I, I think I, I I strongly fancy Fury based on everything that we know about him both. In England, who yeah, are they rooting like, for to win this fight? Who are they rooting for? You say? Yeah, yeah. What's the consensus? Well, how's the crowd going to be split? Two Britishers coming in the ring. They're pretty much split down the middle. Fury is massively popular. He has that cult hero status. He does have that, especially in the flesh when you see him interacting with the crowd. I went to the public workout the other day. Um, you know, Dylan is popular. He, people like him more or less because he's, he's kind of the, you know, the Brixton Road man, you know, via Jamaica. He's got a lot of that kind of credibility. Sometimes it does become an ethnic thing. You do some, some people say they're rooting for South London and because he's a South London guy. And you do get the Black Brothers thing. That still exists. That's still a thing. I would say you don't really get it the other way. Like the kind of, I don't think we have Caucasian bias with Fury. Yeah, you might might have that. But I think sometimes I know I, know I have black friends who root, often will root for a black guy because they identify with him more. I don't think we should be scared of that and walking on eggshells. Uh, but we're pretty much <laughs> down the middle. Also. <laughs> I agree. You know, Fury's like the Undertaker. It's like yeah, you knock him down, he just pops back up. I don't know how he does it sometimes, but it just seems you can't you you can't keep him down. He's, he looks like he has a weak chin, but he's got a strong will, man. That guy gets up all the time. So, uh, yeah, yeah, unless unless Fury's just not on at all, I can't see him losing to White at all either. I I, I pick Fury to win at least by the sixth round. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, Got to let you go, Ben. It's been a great, great uh, guest spot again by you. You're very interesting. I'm definitely going to get the book, The Fifth King, The Rise and Fall of Wilford Benitez uh, on Amazon. Uh, check it check it out. It's 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 a reasonable buy too about one of the greatest welterweight uh, welterweight champions to me of all time. He he's, he was there, and uh, you know what just happened to come into the wrong time when the welterweight division was just stacked. So um, you know, interesting story. Can't wait to read it, Ben. Again, thank you for coming in. We love having you on. Thanks, guys. Love coming. Okay. Thanks, Ben. See you. Have Thanks. a good one, Ben. So there you go, folks. Ben Doherty. Uh, Doherty doing his thing, right? Telling us about boxing. He's a boxing man, author. He was always been always involved in boxing coaching and stuff like that. I've I've I've, I've kind of looked him up and see 
Uh, I love boxing guys. I just love them, Jack. Thanks for having to thanks for getting them on with us. Folks, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Again, we'll be back tomorrow with uh our Friday show with uh here we go. With uh Jack, who do we have on tomorrow? Keith Angle, the Philly sports guy, and Byron Williams always. We have on Pax. He thought he was supposed to come on today, got his days mixed up. I think ah, he yeah. was a little dizzy from Joe Lambide's buzzer beater, you know, to win the game for the Sixers to go up 3 nothing against the Raptors. I think he's a little hungover from that, Pags. Or maybe it's that charity chugging contest he's always in. I don't know, Jack. We'll see. Folks, thanks for joining us. Loved having you aboard. Uh, me and Jack always appreciate uh, you tuning in and watching our show. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. You guys have a great Thursday, and hope everything goes good for you today.